Welcome to BR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. Today, we're going to shed some light on why businesses or organizations need to sit up and maybe pay closer attention to the return on investment that VR might provide for learners. So I've invited Jeremy Dalton on the show today. Jeremy leads Price Waterhouse Coopers VR AR team. And he helps clients understand, possibly quantify, and of course, of course, most importantly, implement the benefits of virtual reality and augmented reality technology. He recently has written a comprehensive and fairly, not fairly, insightful, I mean, book titled Reality Check, How Immersive Technologies Can Transform Your Business. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here, Craig. Thanks for having me. No problem. I always start with this question. It's almost like an origin story question, and I get quite a diversity of answers. What got you interested and excited about VR in the first place? So I think what, what makes VR and NAR so special is that it's, it's a technology that's very visceral, very experiential. Um, and if you compare it to, and, and the best way to think about this is by comparing and contrasting it with other technologies, take artificial intelligence or blockchain or the Internet of Things. Now, all of those technologies are amazing in themselves. But when you look at VR and AR with, in comparison to them, they, they deserve a genre of, of their own. It's just such a... Um, an incredibly emotional, impactful technology that also has business value as well as value in our personal lives that I was I found myself encapsulated by the technology and what it could do and, and uh, what it could do now as well as in the future. So I with that, I started to I started to move my my role at PwC at the time, which was around innovation into being more specialist towards uh, VR technologies. And, um, and and what happened as a result of that is I built a brand. I started to speak about it. I started to engage with the technology, give talks on it. And it took a number of years of campaigning to really get it to a place where um, I, could, I, could, uh, I could effectively run a, a, a team um, in PwC. But uh, in September 2017, I think um, the, the company probably finally got fed up with me banging on the door so much about virtual reality that they agreed um, to give me the remit and the role to lead a team around virtual reality and augmented reality. And uh, here we are today, a few years later, and, and things are going fantastically. How long did you ruminate on working with VR before you decided to write the book? Ooh. So it it must have been it must have been a few years. Um, I guess writing a book it was it was an idea, 
but I didn't think it would ever become a reality. <laughs> and uh, that, that word comes up a lot. <laughs> and the, the, hence the name of the book, actually. There was a lot of uh, brainstorming about uh, you know, finding a, a, an insightful, but also a, an, an amusing and, and pun-filled name. So we, we landed on reality check with the publisher at the end of the day. And that's been receiving quite a lot of, uh, lot of praise. So I'm glad we, we got that one. But uh, to answer your, your question, Craig, it was... It was certainly a few years. I didn't think it would be realistic to do so. I didn't take it seriously enough um, until I was um, approached by the publisher um, and they found me on, on social media and they said, you know, are you, are you interested in, in putting a case together for, for writing something like this? And that's when I thought, you know, this is going to be really tough. I know that it's going to be really challenging, um, but it's going to be rewarding on the other side of it. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm still at a stage where I don't know how rewarding it's going to be, but the book is out there now. So, uh, I guess I'll, I'll return back to it and let you know in about six to 12 months time. There you go. Well, I can attest for the fact that I did read it and it was a great read. So well done. Ah, fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that, Craig. You know, PricewaterCooper or PwC is what you call it. They teamed up with uh, another developer out of the United States called Tailspin and they conducted this comprehensive study of what the advantages of using VR to train employees in what we might call soft skills. So soft skills mean things like effective communication, how good are they at understanding diversity, and they compared that type of training, VR, to how, how well it would be done through e-learning and then through the physical classroom. And so this particular study has shown up immensely in social media. I know I'm an avid LinkedIn and Twitter follower. And so, you know, one might say it's a landmark study. C can you tell us a bit about it being that you are from PwC? Yeah, absolutely. So the motivation for this study was to try and give the industry some ammunition around the effectiveness of these technologies. Because anecdotally, we knew that they were, they were proving to be effective. We were getting great feedback you know, from different people all around the world. Uh, we were deploying it at clients and, and, and getting good feedback there. But where was the data? People want to see the data. They want to see a formal study with a methodology behind it. Um, and they want to understand numbers wise, you know, what, what does this actually translate to? It's all well and good saying that uh, virtual reality is fantastic, you know, when it comes to soft skills training. But if you haven't conducted a formal study around it um, and produced that quantitative data, it's difficult to, to move the needle in terms of belief and trust in the technology. So we wanted to try and assist with that at least a little bit. So, as you said, you know, we worked with, with Tailspin um, and uh, they were the software developer that built the, the module, um, the virtual reality module. The, the training itself was around inclusivity in leadership training. And the reason we selected this subject in particular is because we already had content relating to it from a classroom perspective as well as an e-learning perspective. So it was, it was really ripe to then say, right, let's take that content and let's do a virtual reality equivalent and compare learners across all three modalities. And, um, and that's what we, what we did. And it was between, uh, it was for a three to four month period that we actually 
um, uh, brought together all the data and started to analyze it and understand it. And it produced some really uh, exciting results. We found that virtual reality learners were four times faster to train in the classroom than in the classroom. We found that they were 275% more confident to apply the skills that they learned after training. They were 3.75 times more emotionally connected to the content than their classroom learner equivalents. And they were four times more focused than their e-learning peers. In addition to that, a lot of people asked us, well, what about the, the cost implications? Because, you know, it's, it's fine if it's, uh, if it's more effective. We can understand that. But at what cost? So we also looked at the cost and we found that VR learning can be more cost effective at scale than, than e-learning and classroom learning. So if you look at the results, initially, as you would expect, virtual reality is actually, is actually quite expensive. It's far more expensive than both e-learning and classroom learning um, at a lower number of lear learners. However, as you move up the scale, as you get to, you know, when you get to 375 learners, virtual reality training actually achieved the same cost per learner as classroom training. And then if you move further along the scale, at 1,950 learners, virtual reality training achieved cost parity with e-learning, which is actually quite incredible if you consider the, the vast ability of, or one of the key strengths of e-learning is really its ability to, to scale to large numbers of people all around the world very quickly um, and, and cost effectively. So this was a great result that um, that incorporated, you know, a lot of a lot of cost factors, including the cost to develop the VR content, including the cost to, you know, purchase headsets and hardware um, and things like that. So it was, and you can read the full details within the methodology um, around uh, what was included, and you can see all the the, the, the whole graph itself um, within the study. But that was those were the key findings um, in summary that we found um, and that we pushed out there, and, and we're glad other people are, are finding it quite useful as well. Mm. Good explanation too, Jeremy. Listeners are going to scooch up on their chair because soft skills are becoming really important, not only just for business, but also for learners and schools. Learners in schools will often call it 21st century skills. So things that you allude to and you have a whole chapter in your book about. So how do we teach people either within business or students within a classroom to be effect more effective communicators? How do we get them to understand empathy skills and problem solving skills? How do we help people, either students or maybe adults in the business world, be better at conflict management. You know, the list goes on and on. If, if I'm an organization and I'm interested in trying to use VR to enhance some of these skills, you know, where's the best sort of category to start? Because there's so many of them. To be honest, it really depends on, on where you are as an organization and what your what key problems you're facing so you know for, for one organization it could be that they have a, a massive problem with uh, with empathy towards colleagues um, whereas in other organizations it may they may be in an industry which is under heavy stress and so stress management might be more important there but i think the an overarching message which is 
significant to think about is that it's not necessarily about trying to boil the ocean, you know, and, and going out there and, and, and trying to tackle everything. What is most important is to identify where your key problem is, um, understand the ability of virtual reality to solve that problem. And if it is a key problem, and if virtual reality can indeed solve that problem more effectively than your status quo solutions, then that is the right time to start thinking about introducing virtual reality as a solution uh, to solve that problem. The issue that comes if you try to solve too many of these problems is that because if you haven't engaged with the technology enough and you're, you're still learning about it and you're still learning about how your workforce responds to it, you could end up in a place where you have failed in a number of different areas as opposed to just starting in a smaller way and, and failing and learning in that one particular area and then growing from that. And then off the back of that learning, investing further in virtual reality solutions or not, depending on what you find um, during that period. But the key thing is start small uh, in a more concentrated area and build from there. Let's shift our attention to another important category of learning for both schools and businesses, and that's something dubbed hard skills or the technical skills. Can you give us, because you write about this in your book again, can you give us an example of how VR might be used to teach hard skills? And then more importantly, what are the benefits to this? Yeah, absolutely. So a case study that I really like bringing up, and, and actually it's one that's included in the book as well, is uh, around American Airlines. Now, in 2017, American Airlines became the first airline in the world to adopt virtual reality for cabin crew training. And at its heart, this is, this is basically hard skills. We're talking about uh, helping cabin crew to perform uh, you know, different uh, self-guided training on door operations, emergency equipment locations, and, and perform their pre-flight check requirements, uh, all of which is quite hands-on and, and, and hard skills connected. Now, what they did is, is American Airlines worked with a company called Quantified Design. They built this 12-room virtual reality training lab, so a physical training lab, and that allowed 12 students to simultaneously practice self-guided training in all these different areas. And uh, the amazing thing is you had it, you would have a facilitator at the, at the front of the, uh, uh, at the front of the, uh, the training hub and that facilitator or, or head instructor could see in, in, a, in a control room type fashion in front of them, all the screens showing all the different individuals as well as their, their, their views in virtual reality. So you not only had a sort of camera footage of them with the headset on, but you also had a view next to them uh, of them performing those actions in virtual reality. And, and that's quite amazing for a number of reasons. It, it has key benefits, first of all, in terms of the, the training outcomes. So results from that study, it was a group of 50 trainees they performed a study on to understand the performance of this. They found that um, the percentage of students confident in reporting a high ability to, to perform, that increased from 20% before the training to 68% afterwards. And those that were required to repeat procedures on a physical simulator, so in other words, where 
they didn't get a high enough score and they had to, you know, they, they failed or had to repeat to get a higher score, that number dropped from 25% to 2%. And those individuals who were performing error-free, so, you know, 100% scores, those increased from 34% to 82%. So some pretty amazing statistics there in terms of the performance of the virtual reality training application. Um, but it, it doesn't stop there. Because in addition to the, the training performance, you also have gains in terms of uh, scalability. So if you think about what cabin crew would have to do without this training program, if they wanted to get that level of, of fidelity and the ability to be hands-on with these different aircraft, they'd have to actually go to those physical aircraft. But you can't, you can't, just, you can't just rent you know, uh, or, or hold... Uh, hundreds of these different aircraft and models and, you know, different variants and types from Boeing and Airbus and so on in a single location would be incredibly expensive. And even if you did have a location or two where you held all of these different types of planes and you maintained the land and the, and, and the aircraft and everything, you, you wouldn't be able to get everyone there easily or at least not as easily as sending them a headset or keeping a headset at a local base rather than having to them having to fly uh, or or drive for hours on end uh, to get to a central training location to perform this action. So there are some efficiencies there in terms of time and cost. And and then finally, in addition to that, the ability to to learn in a more effective way using such a solution actually saves a lot of money in terms of uh, having those individuals avoid costly errors in the real world. So if you if you if as cabin crew you accidentally deploy one of those physical emergency slides, that just one of those accidental deployments could cost an airline up to $30,000 to recheck, re repair and repack. And if the flight's canceled as a result, that cost can spike to $200,000. So incredible savings there even beyond after the training as well. Um, so I, I think that's just a great example of of virtual reality and and using that to uh, uh, to to uh, to tackle hard skills. And Jeremy, it didn't make sense to me at first when I tried one of these highly procedural learning experiences. The hard skill app that I tried was about how one might fix a transformer. And so, what they had me do in this VR experience that I tried was. There was some equipment on the truck, so I had to walk or teleport up to the truck. And then I had to gather the necessary tools needed. And some of it would just highlight and flash. So I would do that. I'd figure out sort of what the tools were. And then it pointed me towards the transformer. And I had to take apart a phalange. And then I had to grease or oil it. And then I had to put on a new phalange. But it, like I said, it was for me, when I first tried it, it seemed so procedural that as an educator in a K to 12 school, I thought, well, you know, where's the, you know, the deep thinking that's going on. But now that you've explained it and put it in perspective about, I can now see how by me trying that three or four or five times gives me greater confidence so that when I go into the field to where the transformer is for real life, I've tried it so many times that I can you know, I have this higher degree of confidence that I'm not going to make a mistake. So I'm, I'm glad you articulated that to me. Absolutely. And, and 
you know, it's all about muscle memory, the great benefits of, of virtual reality applications for these, these hard skill type um, uh, requirements is that you're actually with your hands in, in, in at least many of these applications performing the action itself. And the more you perform that, the more that sort of action is committed to memory. And therefore, the, the more effective you learn about it that goes beyond just clicking on a screen on an e-learn application, for example. Yeah. You know, the other magic of VR is it provides users what we might call embodiment and presence. So when you're in the environment, what that really means is people in their brain feel like they really are in that environment and they get this sense that, you know, it's real. So as you said in the book, the choices individuals make in VR are more reflective than of the choices they're going to make in the real world. Have, have there been any studies on that transfer rate or maybe just talk about that transfer rate for us? Yeah, sure. So in terms of studies on on something that is as niche as that, I haven't personally come across it. But if you if you think about the theory behind it, um, the idea being that in virtual reality, you are performing these actions as you would in the real world. Now, you can't get it in, in a lot of cases, you can't get it 100% right. Um, because we haven't we haven't quite developed, you know, the haptics technology, for example, that allows you to feel the feedback of of the weight of an object or the pressure of it as you're, you know, turning a screw into into uh, some hardwood, for example. Um, but that that technology is is progressing itself. Um, even without it, however, even without haptic feedback, just the ability to to do things that take you closer to the real life application are going to have a positive impact on the end result. So your ability to reach out um, and pick up an object from a table, your ability to reach into your virtual tool belt and pick out a drill, uh, your ability to lean over um, you know, the engine of your vehicle uh, when you're being instructed on how to perform an oil change, for example. Uh, all of that helps to build a greater understanding of the scenario and therefore a greater learning on how to perform the action that you're training on. Mm, well said. You also mentioned in your book that when VR users or when users are in VR, they have the ability to interact with digital assets. These are digital twins of objects. So, you know, there's a real heart in the real world. You might have a digital twin of that heart in the virtual world. And so when, when people or users or participants are in the VR world and they're allowed to have this intimate interaction with these products, maybe assembling something, for example, they get this stronger emotional attachment to the product, almost like you know, it might be dubbed the IKEA effect when people get IKEA furniture, it comes flat pack in a box, and then the user or the buyer or the consumer has to sp spend time, blood, sweat, and even maybe tears to put it together. But as a consequence, you talk about in your book, this this might be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. If the the studies have shown that the the closer someone feels to a to a product the greater their sense of ownership over it and in fact the more they're willing to pay for it now this is 
this is something that's very commercial uh, minded and uh, and sort of uh, uh, enterprise connected in nature. But you can see how it starts to apply as well from a learning and development context, because those studies show that um, even when you're talking about you know rotating a mouse um, to move a 3D object on a screen, the the feelings of ownership over that object increase by 18.9% versus just seeing a 2D image listing of that product. Now, if you, you can take it a step further, of course, and you can introduce augmented reality uh, into it. Um, and I'm sure there are equivalents for virtual reality, but I haven't seen the, the VR study for this yet. But this looked at augmented reality's ability to create that similar sense of presence so that when you bring an object into your real world environment with augmented reality, it creates a 174% greater sense of presence than when compared with 2D images. So it goes beyond uh, just the, the, the 2D um, uh, spinning of a, a pseudo three-dimensional object on your, on your screen. And that shows you the power of, of this immersive technology to make it feel like it is ours and, 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 and as a result to get us to, to increase our, our emotional attachment to it and therefore our engagement and focus on it. So connecting it to a learning and development context, it is that increased emotional engagement and focus as a result of the increased emotional impact that will likely have, have an effect in the, in the learning and development space. And intuitively, that makes sense to me as a teacher for many years. I, you know, I know when I have a hands-on lesson or a hands-on activity, you know, you see the kids light up, they're learning, that their level of enthusiasm goes way up, you know, consequently, the noise in the classroom goes up, but it's all good. So I can see that. Let's talk about 360 videos, which is a bit of a hot topic. So 360 or 360 degree videos are sometimes used for VR experiences, even though you know you could see them on the 2D flat screen. You could take your mouse and you could uh, toggle around in 360 degrees and, and see that in a computer or a 2D image. Yet they're criticized for their lack of immersion in VR. And in your book, you're quoted as saying, the biggest argument people have against 360 degree video in a VR headset is that it is not as interactive as other forms of VR. Uh, unpack that for us. Does that mean we should steer away from 360 video when we're in VR or not? So the thing about 360 video is there's a lot of confusion about it and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of unnecessary and, and unfounded hate towards 360 video that mostly comes from within the virtual reality industry, to be honest. Um, but I don't buy into that at all. My view on 360 video is that it is a legitimate form of content that can be used in a virtual reality context in the same way that that computer is very analogous to computer generated technology. So I can build something uh, in 3D using a game engine like Unity or Unreal, and I can introduce that into a virtual reality environment through a headset. Equivalently, I can put that onto your laptop screen and you can move your mouse to look around, you know, similar to a, a computer game on, on, on a PC. That doesn't mean that uh, computer generated experiences are not, uh, are not good enough to be virtual reality. 
Um, not at all. These are just two different forms of content that can appear within virtual reality as well as uh, in, in flat media um, that we're used to on, on desktop and laptop and so on. Um, and I definitely would not uh, steer away from it just because, you know, you may have heard some, uh, you know, negativity around it. Uh, yes, it may not be as interactive as other forms of, of virtual reality, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have any use. We've successfully, and I mentioned this because it's first-hand experience, we've successfully used uh, 360 degree video within virtual reality experiences to, to great effect um, and to build real emotional impact. Um, we worked with a bank on, on helping their, their leadership tackle negative behaviors towards members of the workforce. That was a 360 video based uh, scenario. We've used 360 video to uh, en engross people in a cybersecurity attack. Uh, on on their organization, and that really builds a sense of of immersion that you're you're there. And even beyond that, even beyond its ability to create emotional impact, um, it's just the the the, the three sixty video itself can be used in an interactive way. So you may not be able to uh, to move around it uh, in 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 a free way as you would do in in uh, in a computer generated environment. Um, but you can still introduce interactivity uh, in a basic way through uh, selecting options that then have an impact on the narrative. So in this cybersecurity example um, we, that we created, you had to make decisions and those decisions that you made led you on a different part of the narrative. And even beyond all that, there are some things that you just can't do or it doesn't make sense to do using computer generated technology over 360 video. And one of those is when you're trying to you're trying to recreate the uh, the real world environment um, to a very accurate way. Yes, you can spend a lot of time and money working with computer generated environments to make them super accurate. But why do that when you can just take a 360 video of the actual environment itself? Equivalently, if you're talking about something that's happening in the future. So we built um, a virtual reality application that takes you to a city of the future, for example, it helps you understand what that might look like. It would make no sense to do that in 360 video because that doesn't exist in the real world. So I can't video it. So therefore, we had to go to computer generated technology for that. So in summary, 360 video or computer generated, it really is all about what your budget is. Uh, what the objective of your uh, of your um, uh, solution is as well, you know, what problem you're solving ultimately. It's important to consider those. And I'm working with uh, a lady who's trying to develop a narrative for veterans out of the United States. And one thing that she was very cognizant of is veterans, most of them who are elderly, of course, you know, th they may not do well in a headset that offers too much interactivity. You know, she talked about the fact that some of them, ha you know, are suffering maybe from mild dementia or Alzheimer's. So putting them into something that is too fantastic and too immersive just isn't possible. They wouldn't know where to click and what to do in, in that event. So 360 video might be the best way to try and tell a story for them. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, what, what you're saying, Craig, connects to another point, which is that virtual reality is not necessarily the, the silver bullet for everything. You know, don't go into a, 
a problem assuming that a new and shiny technology like virtual reality is going to solve it. It might not. Um, there might be another solution that is, you know, technological but not VR related. Um, or in fact, there could be a solution that has nothing to do with technology whatsoever, but is actually a very clever way of solving the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. Ultimately, don't don't use the technology as a gimmick or a novelty. Use it for where it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then go for something else. You're going to have a far greater time in the long run if, if, if you follow that way of thinking. That's a great segue to this next question. So there are some innovative companies out there who are creating virtual campuses for learning. One that comes to mind is a company called Victory XR, and they're ramping up to offer virtual reality face-to-face -face or synchronous classes. So if we think about it, even back to the, the tailspin study, uh, there's e-learning, there's physical learning within the physical classroom, and now there's VR synchronous learning. You know, what are your thoughts? Do you think VR synchronous learning will replace e-learning and the physical classroom in the near future? I think it may replace some aspects of, of e-learning and, and physical learning, but it absolutely shouldn't replace all aspects of them. There will always be a place for, for physical classroom learning and for e-learning, and virtual reality shouldn't be designed to overtake everything in that area um, because there are things you can get from e-learning and physical learning that you can't get in virtual reality. Um, in terms of e-learning, that would be scalability. In terms of classroom learning, that would be you know face-to-face -face, uh, communication, connection, um, and uh, you know virtual reality has its strengths. Um, but it also has its weaknesses as well in terms of, you know, you have to have uh, hardware that needs to be deployed and maintained and sanitized and so on. But again, you know, it has its strengths in terms of being able to immerse people um, in different environments and really get them to, to click with that content emotionally. So in summary, I think it, it certainly should replace some e-learning and physical learning where there is absolutely no need or it's, or that content, that learning content is better served with the strengths that come from virtual reality, but it absolutely shouldn't replace all e-learning and physical learning. Let's go back to your book for a minute. Let's say I'm your publisher and you've finished and you, you've obviously authored your book and it's out there in the public. And I say to you, you know what? I want you to add one more chapter. What do you think that might be? What would be your new extra chapter that you added to your book? I actually had to, I had to remove some stuff from the book at the end. So I, I actually, I wrote more than what you see in that book. Um, and one of those chapters was a sort of future facing outlook on the technology. So it was designed, you know, you've been through the book, the book talks about the present and what you can benefit from the technology. Uh, and then I wanted to take the audience into the future and, and what this might look like, uh, you know, in a, in a few years time. But I ended up scrapping it in the end simply because um, I felt that the material was was covered elsewhere in different books and in and with different people and their thoughts on on social media and so on. Um, and I'm excited about what it can do in the future, but I also wanted business leaders and, and people within organizations thinking about using VR and AR 
to understand right now what are the benefits. I really wanted to drive home that idea that virtual reality and augmented reality are valuable right now. It's not about what they can do in the future. They may do some even more amazing things in the future, and that's great. But the important lesson to take is that it's valuable in organizations right now. It's being used in organizations right now and to great purpose. Hmm. Well, um, well so go ahead. Keep going. Yep. Thanks. Sorry, Craig. I just remembered there was a, one other thing as well. It was in the way I'm talking about the, the present and the future uh, of the book. I did manage to put a little bit of the past into the book. And that research I actually really, really enjoyed. I love digging up little, little tidbits about um, the past uh, history of virtual reality and where it came from and even things that you wouldn't necessarily associate uh, with virtual reality, but connect to it in, in the form of you know, storytelling. Because ultimately, virtual reality is a storytelling medium. You, know, you just may use virtual reality to tell a different type of story. It may be a business uh, type of story where you're trying to convince stakeholders or sell a product or improve your negotiation skills or whatever it is. But ultimately, it stems from storytelling. And that subject itself has a rich history in humanity. But uh, I, I didn't want to get too philosophical in the book. So I, I curbed a lot of that back. But there may be scope in the future, you never know, for uh, a little bit a little bit of an insight into the, the past of virtual reality. I think I'm quite excited and, and passionate about that. One of my favorite parts of your book, and there were many, was how well you you told the story, your your examples and your case studies. Like you you know you mentioned American Airlines. You know the book is is littered with stuff like that that kept me so interesting or interested and engaged. What a great way to sort of wrap this up with you sort of predicting and and talking about you know. VR and AR is, it's in the now. It's not something that people should sort of think about, you know, what should I be worrying about in five years? How can people get a hold of you and maybe even get a copy of your outstanding book? Yeah, so if anyone wants to get in touch, uh, you can head over to um, jeremydalton.co.uk. That will go to my, uh, my website and you have all my social media details there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter mainly. If you want to, um, if you want to check out the book and uh, read more about it, get more details, and, and order a copy, you can head to realitycheckxr.com, and that will give you everything you need to know. Well, Jeremy, this has been a fantastic talk. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, unpack a bit of your book and and be a champion for VR. So, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure, Craig. Thanks a lot for having me.